Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Voices in Recovery is produced by Freedom's Path Recovery Society, a registered Canadian charity. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider a donation at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca. All donations go directly to assisting Freedom's Path in providing services free of charge and helps us keep the podcast going. We are grateful for any and all donations. This podcast discusses difficult topics such as childhood abuse, drug and alcohol use, sexuality, sexualized trauma, and more. If you are under the age of 18, please speak with your legal guardian prior to listening. The opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individual and not those of Voices in Recovery or Freedom's Path Recovery Society. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chinookie. We acknowledge the Satuna, who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. Well, Benji? Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, we're excited to hear your story because I know very little about you. <laughs> but I'm very curious. I have been. Uh, obviously, anyone who calls himself Benji is going to get my curiosity. Yeah. Uh, you know, I guess I was born in California, so oh, okay. American. What part um, of California, if you don't mind? In Riverside County, so oh. a little bit inland from... Uh, Los Angeles. Yeah, Riverside. You spend time out there. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, my dad lives in, sort of near Palm Springs now. Oh, okay. Right on. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, I was born down there. My parents were pen pals when they were kids. Like, they met in a hotel. Really? Like, their parents were both in the same hotel in Edmonton. Yeah. They exchanged information. They were pen pals from the time they were 12. So That's so wild. Yeah. So, my mom's from northern Alberta, and she went down to California to meet my dad, and they got married and had me, but we weren't there for too long. I think we moved to LA, and then I think the crime was something that was just really different for my mom to experience. Mm-hmm. In '94 was the LA riots, yeah. And um, my mom, being from like a small town in northern Alberta, was like, "Wow, this is different. Let's go back to Canada." So, and the, well, the riots were very different. Yeah, that was like a powder keg down there. Well, my mom is uh, First Nations as well, mm. you know, like I'm white presenting, so my like, lived experience is different, I think, being a woman who's, you know, she has her own story. Mm. Um, so we moved to Canada, and I remember we got here, and it's one of my earliest memories is like driving through, because we, Lana Edmonton got, went to Lacobiche, which is a few hours away, mm. and we moved in January. Oh. So probably the best time in Canada to move. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think I experienced snow yet. <laughs> oh shit. So the thing I like the thing I noticed the most was there were no people mm-hmm. in the streets. I mean it was the middle of the night, but I just was like mm-hmm. it was dark and it was cold and it was empty. It just seemed very eerie to me. Um and then we moved we lived there until I was about seven and then we moved to Red Deer. Which I've moved tons. By the time I was in the eighth grade, I had gone to 12 schools. Mm-hmm. So, but Red Deer sort of where I feel like the most I grew up because I went around oh, back Red and Deer? forth to places. And, 
probably the most of my childhood was spent there. And Red Deer is literally like the um, racist belt of Canada, really. It's like the capital of it, I think. Sorry. Oh, it's super easy to grow yeah. up there. Super easy, hey? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it was pretty... I was a pretty sassy little boy. I really liked performing and singing and dancing and doing a lot of things that little boys don't normally do, mm-hmm. you know, and that got me a lot of like positive attention from adults around me and a lot of negative attention from mm-hmm. uh, kids my age. So I didn't really have a lot of friends. And then not to mention, I moved so much that I was always the new kid. It was hard like going into like a small town and seeing like these established people like all these kids my age, they, they had grown up, their parents were friends and like, you know, their, their moms were like pregnant together and yeah. I could never like develop that connection with these people. Mm-hmm. But it did make me really outgoing and able to connect quickly and make friends fast. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I, uh, yeah, we, we kept moving till... I think we, we stayed in Red Deer until I was 10, and that's when my parents got divorced. And even in this time, like, my parents were really young, and they liked to go out on the weekends. And, like, I just, I was an only child, so, like, spent a lot of time around adults. And I remember thinking, like, this is, this looks super fun, what all these adults do. Mm-hmm. On weekends, and that's how people have fun. And they were partying and dancing, and there was music, and... I I remember, like, you know, sometimes I would sneak out in the middle of the night. My parents would have had a party or something or come home from a bar, and I would get up and sing for all of the drunk mm-hmm. adults, and they would just love it. <laughs> and that was, like, my first experience with, like, being sort of the center of attention, and I loved that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um when my parents got divorced, my mom came out as a lesbian. Hmm. So she left my father um, and, and told me that she, would, like, you know, that she had met a woman on the internet and that, she was gonna, that we could go live with her. I think actually she was going to come up to Canada, but there were some issues with immigration. So we ended up moving to her, which was in Orlando. That was really a tough experience because I'd gone from like an elementary school in small town Red Deer Mm -hmm. to a middle school in like central Florida that was way bigger, way more diverse. Mm -hmm. And I was one of like... Probably like four four or five times as big, eh, I bet? Yeah, there was... I went from a school I think that was like 300 students to a school that was over a thousand for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. And a handful of white kids. I was one of them, you know, and I had always like struggled with fitting in and struggled with finding friends, but it became that much more challenging when I was not part of the group at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, like life was just very chaotic. Uh, my father had moved to California. My mom was, my mom and I were living in Florida. I hated it. I had no friends. We were like much poorer than we'd ever been and everything was just a struggle. And mm-hmm. my mom had her own journey with alcohol and, and uh, yeah, life was just pretty chaotic at that time and I was very frustrated. But I think when I hit 
13, we moved back to Canada. I was so excited. I remember we drove across the border and I saw the Canadian flag and I cried because mm. I was just so happy to be back here. And uh, I had some cool experiences in Florida, like seeing the shuttles and stuff at Cape mm. Canaveral and things like that. But Canada was like definitely where I felt more at home. And yeah. we came back, my mom's relationship had fallen apart and, um, and for a while we sort of bounced around, we'd moved to Red Deer, but in this sort of chaos, I remember we would, there were times where I would wake up in the middle of the night and we would be moving. Mm that night and find myself in another town in the next mm. morning. And that was really a challenging period. Yeah, no doubt. And when I was, I think I had like, I came out of the, I don't even remember exactly when I came out of the closet, but it was around 12, mm. which made it really difficult because I came out so many times mm. because I'd go to a new school and then I'd have to come out of the closet again. <laughs> Oh, wow. So I became like professional at it. Man, you, yeah, you would have been really good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the hardest was living in, the hardest place to live in was in Red Deer. We, uh, <laughs> I don't know what that is. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's the furnace. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The pipes. I'm sorry. No, it's all good. I, uh, I found that. That was because I'd known people there the most because I'd gone to elementary school. I did a little bit of middle school. Like I'd, so even though I didn't really grow up there, I had people throughout my life mm -hmm. that I'd known all the, over the years. And that was the hardest because to see those people turn away from me was difficult, mm -hmm. you know. And I remember like my mom telling me like, you should go on the internet. Not very good advice, but keep in mind, like, the internet was a little newer mm -hmm. when I was this age. And I was like, you should go on chat rooms and find other gay people to talk to. <laughs> I bet your mom's like, I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> no, I, you know, it worked out fine because <laughs> I, luckily. Well, how I, else would you have found a... a a community, though. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I was just on my way here on the phone with my friend who's been one of, my best friend forever. And I met him on a chat room. Mm -hmm. And we're the same age. And, uh, yeah, we've been best friends for since we were, like, 12. Mm -hmm. Cool. And <clears throat> in the, and actually through that friend, I met him on, on some gay youth website. And even in those days, like, we didn't really have webcams. So, like, I really was just trusting that this person was not, it was, like, who they said they were. They could have been anyone. He wasn't a predator or something like yeah. that. Yeah. But he had mentioned, like, hey, like, there's this other person. I, I lived in Red Deer at the time. He lived in Edmonton. He's like, hey, I know this other person, and he lives in Drumheller. Like, you might like to talk to him, too. And there was just, like, a few people I chatted with. And, and this guy, who's a few years older than me, um, Joel, and... We started talking, and after about a year, he moved to Red Deer because he finished high school and was getting out of the town he was in. And we met up and started dating. And it was like, I was pretty young. So I really like dove in, and I'm like, mm. look, I'm, I'm starting to revisit all of this now and see like sort of how my addiction mm -hmm. to people is, you know, it all plays in together. I think it was like the third day that I'd met him in person and I was like, I love you, mm. you know, yeah. just 
Um, well, it must have been like difficult because you probably met someone who you thought was like incredible yeah. and like one of a kind, which he probably is one of a kind, but like yeah. at the time that would be very enticing. Right. Well, and there was and also it could feel the, like love. well, <laughs> and there was also like, I don't know, the safety. Mm -hmm. I had been sort of in a chaotic environment for a long time and mm. I met him and we sort of started dating and moved in together really quickly. You know, so I was 14, I dropped out of school, moved in with this guy and started working, which was tricky because I didn't have my citizenship yet. So mm. I had to work some pretty odd jobs and cash jobs and stuff to yeah. get through. And a lot of times just rely on him for financial support because I couldn't, there'd be times where I wasn't working. But, for the first time, I really felt like, you know, I had some sense of control over my life. Mm. You know, I, did, I wasn't at the whim of somebody else to, like, move across the country. And that was, that was really good. I, I felt really, like, I was going to, I don't know, I always wanted to, like, make it out of my station in life. And I was like, I can do this, and I can, I don't know. It was the first step of that. Um, then... We moved to Edmonton together from Red Deer, and that was my, it was around that time I went to my first bush party. And it's a bush party. It's like where, it's a country thing where all the kids go out to the bush and ah, okay. get, where the police can't get to you. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to my first bush party, and I, I think I was like 13 or 14, something, somewhere around there. And I never had a lot of friends, but the goth kids invited me. Mm-hmm. And they were like really cool and really nice to me. They were the only kids that the only group that was nice to me, because they didn't really care that I was gay. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I remember I had had alcohol before, but it was the first time I was like at a party and mm -hmm. everybody was my like my age ish, not adults. And I remember, you know, standing on top of a table and dancing and being like the life of the party and being with these people and thinking like, this is what life is about. Mm -hmm. The first time I didn't feel like isolated or alone. And I felt like it was part of a group of people. I was like, these are my people. I mean, I don't, I can just pretend to like the music they like, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, I like black eyeliner, let's do it. You know, <laughs> started a little bit of a goth phase in my life, but I, knew I was like immediately in love, not with necessarily with alcohol at the time, but with this party, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted, I wanted every day to be filled with joy and celebration. And that's what partying was to mm -hmm. me. And, you know, slowly my life was started to revolve around weekends and the next thing that I was doing that weekend, next bush party or the next whatever it would be. And when we moved to Edmonton, I was 15 and I got, and I had a fake ID. So that was my first time really experiencing a gay club. Mm. And, you know, I really thought that the thing that was missing out of my life was a sense of community, was the, the people. Like I was too surrounded by people that I thought were closed-minded and redneck or mm. I, these people just didn't get me. And if I could just find those people, then my life would be better. And so I finally like, found myself in a gay bar in a metropolitan place feeling like a cool city gay mm -hmm. and feeling so incredibly insecure 
you know, that people either like didn't have enough money, or wasn't, I wasn't as attractive as other people or whatever it was, there was, there was a deep insecurity in me that made me feel even more alone because I should be happy, but I'm not. Um, but I was addicted to trying. Like I still wanted to be there even though mm -hmm. I felt alone. And alcohol helped that a lot. Mm -hmm. Because it's an I, elixir, that's for sure. Yeah. And it made me more fun, more and uh, I don't know. It made me think I was more fun and more exciting. And so I started to go out to these bars and I got tons of attention because I was young. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and I loved that, you know. Well, you were probably a lot of fun, too. Yeah, I'm sure I was. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine. Well, and, you know, the, I, think, I think I was really fortunate that I was in, a, like, a committed relationship at the time because that can turn into a pretty dark and dangerous place mm -hmm. when you're seeking that level of validation, which I was, but I was still, you know, I could sort of stop it before it got to... Mm -hmm. Because you had kind of an anchor with your partner, right? Yeah. yeah, and he didn't like to go out, so he was always at home, which was, you know, not a very, like, equal partnership, but, um, yeah, I, we, we came, we moved back to Red Deer after a while. I think I did first. We had, you know, through the years, we had some ups and downs in the relationship where we were on again, off again. Mm -hmm. um, we both moved back to Red Deer on again and lived there for a few more years. I went to hair school and became a hairdresser. And he got, you know, he was in IT and got a good job working at an engineering firm. And, you know, it was like, life is making sense. Mm -hmm. it, I was, it had my citizenship. I was an adult who was working in this field that I really had always wanted to work in. Mm -hmm. And I was starting to go out more and more and drink more frequently. And my partner at the time didn't really drink ever, you know, maybe a couple of times a year. And he did not enjoy seeing me go out all the time. But um, it started to affect work. I started to not be able to show up on time. And I went to my first 12-step meeting when I was 19. And I remember thinking, I'm not like these people, you know? Because they were, they, it was a room full of people that were much older than me. It was in the basement of the, the hospital. Mm. And, you know, all of these people were talking about sort of like their lowest lows, which I hadn't been anywhere near that at that point. So I was just looking at, I'm not that. And I remember leaving and this woman coming up to me as I was leaving, this older woman, and she said, she's like, honey, do you ever go to bed or do you pass out? Mm -hmm. And I was like, people don't pass out? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Some I, people are living a different life, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I, I didn't... I, I didn't get sober at all in that from that meeting, mm -hmm. but that little that little seed 
set in my mind. And mm -hmm. every time things started to get really bad or I lost another job or something was falling apart, I would think about that woman talking mm -hmm. to me and I would think, not everybody's life looks like this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I continued to live this way where, you know, things would fall apart, but I would pull it back together. I would stop drinking so much or moderate for a bit and then things would fall apart again. Mm -hmm. And I moved to Calgary when I was 19. My partner, um, you know, his sister owned a hair salon and sort of worked for her here and there. And um, he got a, another good job. And we, I don't know, life just looked really good. I was extremely miserable. Mm. You know, I like, I'd been with this person for, at that time, like six years. And I really loved them, and I, and, but I just, like, I was really noticing that I still didn't really know who I was. Mm -hmm. I was really struggled with that because it was, like, part of this partnership yeah. for so long and from being so young. And I was trying to, like, I was trying to define myself while still in it, and that was really tricky. Mm -hmm. um, I remember I like I went to a drag show, and my partner at the time said, "If you do drag, we will break up." I was like, "Hmm." So we went through an off period. So you were like, "Where do I get a dress?" Immediately went to a drag show. Hundred <laughs> percent. And what's great is that my partner—we weren't together at the time. He never missed a single show. He was yeah. there every time, even when we were like apart. And mm -hmm. he never—he he hated them. And we went to—and he always was there. Mm -hmm. You know, and then. We got back together, and now I was already a drag queen. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, <laughs> too late, right? Mm -hmm. And that's when I thought, this is what's been missing in my life. It's performing. Mm -hmm. This is what's going to keep me, like, this is what's going to give me direction, and I'm not going to keep messing things up because I, mm -hmm. I still couldn't like just decide that it was. I couldn't figure out what it was, mm -hmm. but something would always cause me to ruin my life. <laughs> um. And I thought, like, yeah, it's performing. This is it. So I, I remember I'd probably been performing for about a year, and I was backstage, and a drag queen, an older drag queen came up to me and said, do you do cocaine? And I was like, no. She was like, you will. <laughs> I was like, that's not, I would not do that, because I knew that I really, really loved alcohol, mm -hmm. and that I would really, really love anything that I put in my body that will take me somewhere else. And so mm -hmm. I just, I was really careful not to expose myself to those things because I was scared of it. Mm -hmm. But you can only sort of, I, I can only be around something for so long without finally just being like. Yeah, fear doesn't work forever. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually. Well, it might be for some it does, but not usually for <laughs> us. Yeah. Not for me anyway. Yeah. And I, I found, uh, you know, all these people were always doing it around me, and I thought, eh, whatever, let's try it. Mm. Well, I was in love immediately, you know? And it's not so much that I really liked what that drug did to me, but it helped, it made me be able to drink more longer. Mm -hmm. And I loved alcohol, but it was, it was the same story, like, oh, I'll just do this on weekends, and I'll just... Um, and then it became progressively more and more 
I think it was 21 or 22 when I, when I tried, uh, you know, drugs for the first time. And, and, uh, and then life spiraled very quickly. I found myself, like, disappearing for days, you know. I would go out to the bar, go to a show, and then after the show, I would go to an after party, and then I'd go to another after party, and I'd meet somebody that, you know, would want to continue partying because I never wanted it to end. And I would go with this person somewhere else and somewhere else and somewhere else, and I just wouldn't go home. I wouldn't go to work. And then I would come home, you know, a couple days later, still in, like, high heels carrying a wig. Mm. It was... Not a cute walk of shame. <laughs> um, you know, to a partner. That sounds pretty good, actually. <laughs> I've seen worse. <laughs> to a partner who loved me, who was terrified mm-hmm. of where I was or what I was doing. You know, um, and I would also, uh, finances were a mess because I would take money from the accounts or I would even take a credit card and take a cash advance, which is terrible. I would do whatever and, you know, I would come back and it would be filled with shame and guilt and remorse. And I would look at this person who loved me and I would just, like, I would promise I'd never do this again. Mm-hmm. And then I would mean it. I would never want to do mm-hmm. this again. I would never want to put that person through that much pain. I would never want to. And then a few days later, I would do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it was... It was horrible to watch myself continue to make these mistakes over and over. And so I finally thought, you know what? This lady's like, this lady's voice in my head. I was like, I should go to a meeting. Mm -hmm. So I went to a queer AA group, you know, here in the city. And I really loved it. You know, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, look at all these like gay people who don't drink. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, and they would talk about the steps, but I didn't know what they were talking about. And I was just like, whatever, I'll show up and mm-hmm. they're sober and I'm sober. And I would get some time. I think, you know, I'd get a few months and start doing better at work. Mm-hmm. Finances would look better. My partner would start trusting me again. I would think, mm-hmm. I can drink now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everything would fall apart again. And very fast. And that happened, you know, a few times. I think the longest I ever got was eight months. And we had planned our first vacation together, our first, like, like real flight anywhere mm-hmm. out of the country. And so we went to Mexico. And I remember my partner, he didn't really understand the disease of addiction. I was starting to really grasp it a little bit better from going to AA meetings, even though mm-hmm. I didn't read the book and I didn't follow the steps. Some of the information sort of mm-hmm. got in. You can get quite a bit, yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I was like, he, I remember my partner saying, like, oh, you can be like a vacation drinker. Like, we'll go to Mexico and you can drink mm-hmm. on vacation and then you just won't drink when we get back. I was like, absolutely, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. And I had a drink at the airport on the leaving, and I stopped drinking five months later. Mm-hmm. And my life was, you know, in smoke. It was the worst mm-hmm. it had ever been. I had been, I had done some really horrible things to my partner at the time, and 
And I really hated myself a lot. And that's when I decided to go into treatment for the first time. I did an outpatient program. Mm -hmm. And that was really good. I really started to get an understanding. It wasn't 12-step based, but I started to get an understanding of what addiction was, why, and and how I like end up in these situations over and over and over again, and how I have such little control. But you know, I can understand that all I want. Mm-hmm. But it was it was a good like first sort of getting the ball rolling, and I stayed sober for quite a few months after that, and then I slipped, and I didn't. It didn't turn into five months, and I stopped really quickly and thought I need to go into an inpatient treatment center because my life was looking so good on this one side. I just, you know, I dropped out of school in the eighth grade. I was so insecure about being uneducated. Mm. So I went back to school, enrolled at MRU, and I took, you know, a 30-level English course and math course so that I could get into a business program. I had never even seen, like, I didn't even know what an essay was. Mm. So, like, learning the structure of an essay. And I got, like, a 96 in that class. Nice. And I was starting to realize that maybe I wasn't stupid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe I had a shot at this normal person life. Mm. Um, so I just finished that semester. I had a slip, decided to go into treatment. My partner and I were buying a condo really talking about having children. You know, I was 26, he was 31. And, you know, I I actually skipped over this, but Mm. he proposed to me about maybe like a year, two years before that at a drag show. And this is the guy who didn't want you to be drag? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was like, let's go watch a show. And I was like, ooh, this is like, this is exciting. Mm -hmm. Because he never wanted to go watch a show when I wasn't in it. Like, he was like, anyway, I said, let's go watch the show. We went to this drag show, and, and uh, he had like talked to all the drag queens, and they pulled me up on stage, and there was a big Dolly Parton that mm-hmm. pulled us up and singing to us, and he oh, proposed cool. to me. And it was really great. We sort of started planning a wedding, and his father passed away, and we sort of put a hold on it. But we were focused on buying this place, and we were about to move into it. <coughs> so I went to an inpatient treatment center because I really didn't want to burn my life to the ground again. Mm-hmm and I knew I needed something else. So I went to this treatment program, which was great, because right when I moved, right when I got out, we were gonna move into our new place um, that we just bought, which was brand new, and nobody had ever lived in it before. I was really excited, and you know, life was really just like on the right track. Mm. And uh, yeah, I got out of, that treatment center wasn't 12-step based either, but I got out. Because I had thought, like, oh, I, I went to these meetings and they didn't work, mm-hmm. you know? So I need something different than that. And I got out and I was like, I've got a shot at this. I know I can do this. Um, you know, life is too good to get to not put the effort in. And we moved into this place and um, we lived in it for, I think it was eight days, and my partner passed away mm. suddenly. He's in an accident. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, I think the hardest, it was definitely the hardest thing I've ever been through, and I don't know that, I'm not trying to tell fate, but I don't know that anything will be harder than that. Mm-hmm. Um, Sounds like a pretty big one. Yeah, we had celebrated our 12-year anniversary like a week before. Mm-hmm. 
And <clears throat> that was really just, my life was just totally gone. Mm. Anything that I had like a vision of what my life was gonna look like was no longer there. And I had been sober for two weeks. Uh, or not two weeks. I've been out of treatment for two weeks. I've been sober for just over like a month and a half. Mm -hmm. And my partner was on life support. And I was 26. And, you know, it was sort of like all of these decisions that I had to make. He had been, he was brought in brain dead. So, which was tough. Um, but to do like if I wanted if we wanted to donate his organs and he had to stay on life support for a few days which was really an awkward a really awful place to be in to be mm -hmm. honest but we did it and I remember thinking to myself like I have to stay sober until the funeral is done mm -hmm. because I have to plan it and I have to be there and I have to be present and I have all these things all these decisions to make and once that's done I don't care what happens to me mm -hmm. and I did stay sober until the funeral was done and the second it was over I was just gone, hmm. you know. Part of my, at that time, I was going through so much intense grief. Oh, can't imagine. I remember being in that treatment center and my counselor telling me that I was in a codependent relationship. And I thought, I told her, I said, why does it matter if I'm in a codependent relationship? Like, we've been together for 12 years. You know, and, and actually, like, the last few years, we were, like, were, like, the most, you know, the years got better. We got mm -hmm. better with time, and I felt so incredibly connected to him in the mm -hmm. last couple years. And so I thought, you know, who cares if we're codependent? We've been together forever. We're going to be together forever, you know? And I remember being at the hospital and calling my counselor, and I was like, I know why. <laughs> like, why I shouldn't have been so codependent because I was never, I was always 50% of a person. Mm -hmm. And then when that person was gone, I was, I had no clue who I was. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was 50% of a person with a drug addiction, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is not a great place to be. That's a perfect, like boiling pot for it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and my addiction likes to, you know, my addiction likes to use, you know, anything in my life to service my addiction. So the um, sympathy that people felt for me going mm -hmm. through that experience was really easy to manipulate into having people tolerate and enable my alcoholism and drug use um, for years after that. You know, even my mom, she was like, I couldn't tell you not to do what you were doing. I don't know what I would do if I was in that position. Um, it enabled me to get away with a lot of things. So I spent, spent a, like, I ended up selling this or getting, backing out of the deal for this place because we'd only lived in it a few days and so we could get it back to the developers because I didn't have any money. I was a student mm -hmm. and... I didn't know what, to do. I didn't even have, I don't even think I had a bank account at the time. Like I had no concept of like what to do in life, but I had to make a lot of big choices really quickly. And I went and stayed with my mom and her wife 
they live a couple hours north of the city in a really tiny town. And I stayed there for, I think, like six months or maybe even a year just to mm-hmm. let things pass. And, um, yeah, after a while, I remember coming to the city and seeing Joel's sister. I'd worked for her on and off over the years. And she had opened, she'd moved her salon and it was really big and successful and she needed help. And I thought, you know, I need to do something. And I moved back to the city with her, with my little dog and rented a room in a friend's house and got this job at the salon. And I was like, okay, I think like life sort of is coming back together. Except that I was like drinking and doing drugs all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, but I was, I was just trying to cope. I was, I was telling myself that like, I just needed this to, to just get through the day. And it was the same problems, except now I was working for somebody who was giving me a lot of, a long, like, a lot of chances. Mm-hmm. And I was taking advantage of that, which was really, really not good. But I, um, you know, it was just, I know, it was just a mess. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I, uh, and then I got, you know, a, a life insurance payout. And, you know, I was a poor kid growing up. So all of a sudden I had more money than I had ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. I was in the most amount of pain I had ever been in my life. And I was completely disconnected from people because the grief made me feel like I couldn't connect to anyone. So I just, you know, bought friends and experiences. Um, and I was incredibly lonely. Mm-hmm. But I did, you know, go on a couple trips and stuff, which was which was great. I went to New York for my birthday because I didn't want to be alone, but I was, I barely remember it because I was just not present and I was just drinking the whole time. And after a while living like this, the money was gone after a while. Mm-hmm. I had burned bridges at work and I, I needed to leave and I didn't know what to do. And I finally started to feel this like like this urge to want to live life again. Mm-hmm. It had been, I think it had been like a year and a half. I was like, you know, I just need to get out of here. There's too many memories tied to the city and I need to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I thought I could live in Vietnam mm-hmm. and teach English and then that will fix all my problems. Mm-hmm. It's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I don't like kids. At least you get to see Vietnam though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I went to go teach children and I don't like kids. Oh my God, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What did you do for a living? I taught kids. Do you like kids? I hate them. Absolutely hate them. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. So I... Uh, <laughs> I like it. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, part of that... So I, That's like addiction logic, though, right? Like, that's addiction yeah. logic 100%. Oh, yeah. Oh, I hate this. I'm going to go do this. It'll solve my problems. 100%. Right on. So I... I, I went to the mountains... First, for the summer, I found a job where I could live in a staff accommodation. And because um, I thought, oh, if I live in a staff accommodation, they'll take rent off my check and I'll save up some money and then I can move to Vietnam at the end of the summer. Mm-hmm. So I went to go work at uh, this lodge in the, in near Lake Louise. 
in Banff National Park. There's no cell service there. There's no internet. Well, there's internet-ish. Mm. Really, really bad. Basically nothing. Mm-hmm. And it was it was great. I would, I'd never been like this outdoorsy person. I started getting, I, I'd never hiked before. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, you know, I started doing stuff that was different and I realized stuff that I would have never done with my partner and it was like, oh, like I started to develop that there was like another, there was more to me than mm-hmm. I'd ever known. And then once that summer ended, I moved to Vietnam and it was such an intense experience. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the one thing about living in a country where nobody speaks English or like very few people speak English is like how long I could go without actually talking to another person. Mm-hmm. And that can be it's really isolating. I couldn't really call home. The time change was so long. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was so depressed. Part of the reason I moved there was because I knew Vietnam, it was really hard to find um, like street drugs. Mm-hmm. They don't, they have sort of much harsher sentencing. So it's just, it's generally hard to get. Not impossible, but Sometimes very. they have on the spot sentencing too, don't they? Yeah. Just like in the Philippines or whatever, yeah. Exactly. So I thought, you know, if there's no cocaine, then I won't mm-hmm. be a mess. Well, I made really good money and vodka was $2 a bottle. So I just drank mm-hmm. a lot and all the time. And it's like 40 degrees. And I lived in Ho Chi Minh City mm-hmm. and it's like 40 degrees every day. So I would be waking up at 6 a.m., getting on a motorcycle in like full dress clothes, sitting in like traffic in the heat mm-hmm. to get to a school that's all like open air and no air conditioning and just trying really hard not to pass out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was wow. my whole day. Just being like dizzy and being like, please don't pass out. Well, and $2 bottles of vodka, that'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. I drank more there than I'd ever drank in my life. Yeah. Um, and I, after, like, I think I only lived there for like four months and I was just, I thought, you know, I can't make things happen here. I need to go back. But I was like, the mountains, I, I felt really cool in the mountains. So I moved back, went to the mountains again for another summer, which was incredible. But I was also making now connections in the village where I could find drugs and I was bringing tons of alcohol up with me and I was living, I was starting to just be the same mess, just like now on a mountain. I thought like, oh, if I like, if I go hiking all the time, Mm -hmm. I won't be a drug addict and an alcoholic. It turns out I can do drugs and drink while climbing up a mountain. (laughs) Dude, that's pretty talented. I was talking to a friend of mine. <laughs> That's hilarious. I didn't think I would hike, but I can do it all. Yeah. I, I, Way to go. <laughs> I was talking to a friend of mine recently, and she was like, do you remember when you would go out like for hikes, and you would take a box of wine, but you would take the bag out of the box, and you would call it your Capri Sun? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, you could have replaced your backpack bladder, too, for water with the I've, box of wine I've bag. I've done that. For yeah, sure. Absolutely. Not and that I, we should be encouraging people to do no, that, but... I mean, and then you ruin it. Yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling that's how people get lost in the woods, like, quite often, is they take a box of wine or something, and they're out there drinking. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I have a, a lot of friends who do similar stuff. Mm-hmm. Not quite to the level that I was, but... I then thought... I, I had needed to go somewhere for the winter because my summer contract was over and I just had a winter 
to do so the year before I went to Vietnam and this year I didn't know where to go. So I applied for a bunch of jobs in a bunch of pretty places. And I got a job on the west coast of Vancouver Island at, in Tofino um, at a resort. I was like, you know what? Surfing. If mm-hmm. I'm a surfer, I won't be a drug addict and an alcoholic anymore mm-hmm. because I'll have purpose and I'll have ambition and I'll have a reason to get out of bed and I won't be this mess. And surfers don't do drugs. Like, no. Historically speaking, no. they're just not drug users. Well, I can tell you that I took one surfing lesson. <laughs> With a guy who was totally high teaching me how to surf. And I never went again. <laughs> no way. And I just, I just sat on the beach at beach fires, yeah. drinking and doing drugs and just being sad on a beach. <laughs> that does not sound as fun. No. Um, yeah. But I, it sounds alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just sad on a beach. <laughs> And then I, uh, you know, I, I was seeing like the same stuff happen, you know, and this is like a recurring theme in my life. As, as a child, I watched my parents move around when things got mm. tough and nothing ever got better. And then as an adult, I continued to move around whenever things got tough. And, you know, there's the saying like, wherever I go, I'm there. Mm. And I kept finding me in all these places. Mm. And I couldn't get, a, I couldn't solve this problem in my life, and I still didn't really know what it was. Mm-hmm. I really thought it was a lack of having some thing, like some activity, some hobby, some joy. Um, so I kept trying to find these things. Like maybe I like fishing, maybe I'm a hunter, maybe, let's keep mm-hmm. adding to the, to the list. And um, I did another year, another summer in the, in the mountains, and then I did another winter in Tofino and that was at a different resort this time and that's like as things had progressed and progressed and progressed you know I'd seen like two of my drug dealers died one of an overdose and the other was murdered in this tiny town and that never once occurred to me that I should probably stop doing drugs mm-hmm. I was just like this town is so small where am I going to find another drug dealer mm-hmm. and I was a server so I had cash every day and I would go out to like you know these nicer restaurants every night after work and I would go have dinner by myself at a fancy place and drink fancy wine and mm-hmm. be completely alone and do drugs in the bathroom and just try to convince myself that this is what life was about was mm-hmm. enjoying these like beautiful meals and fancy people and I but I was alone and I was so sad mm-hmm. and my I had brought a friend out to Tofino because he was going through a breakup here. And I was like, come work with me and get a job out here. We can live together in the staff house. And and he did. And um, he didn't like the amount of drugs that I was doing. And he didn't tell me about it, but he told Human Resources. Mm. So I got asked to leave my staff house in 48 hours. So I'd been living with, I'd been living out of one suitcase for like almost five years. And that's all I had. I didn't have any money saved because I was buying alcohol and drugs every day. It just hit me how like little I had at the time. And I was leaving, I was gonna go hang out at my mom's house for a bit and try and figure out my next steps. And I was at a going away party my friends threw for me and we were at this restaurant and the food and beverage director and the 
executive chef from the restaurant that I'd worked at were there eating at a different table and they sent me shots. I went up to them to say thank you for the shots and bring them shots and, you know, say it was great working with you, whatever. And the executive chef was like, I love working with you. And when I heard what happened, I was so upset and I was just like, why couldn't you hide it better? Mm-hmm. And I thought, it hit me that like, that I had been putting myself in all of these situations in service of my, to my addiction. Mm-hmm. I've been put, like I'd been building my life all around people who would enable me, situations that would enable me mm-hmm. without ever realizing it, mm-hmm. but that I crafted this life around being able to drink and use mm-hmm. drugs and nobody to bother me about it. You know, I always convince myself, like, well, I don't have kids and my bills are paid. Mm-hmm. So who am I hurting here? And I didn't live around family and the people that I was friends with, I was only friends with for a few months at a time. So what's, what's mm-hmm. the real problem? But, but like, you know, there's, I was so depressed. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, I moved to my mom's house and I came up with the game plan. I thought, you know what? I need to be an adult. I need to, it's all of these environments that have been, mm-hmm. that have made me a drug addict and an alcoholic. If I just change that, it will be better. So I decided to move back to Calgary and go to university and finish the schooling that I'd never done. And I got here and I found an apartment and I moved into it and I got my student loan and I never went to a class. Mm. And I never left that apartment except to go to the ATM and to go to the liquor store. And I spent a few months like that. And it's pretty crazy how much dependency like my body can go through when like all I put in it is alcohol Mm -hmm. for months and how hard it can be to stop and I realized that there was nothing left I was in like basically an empty apartment with like no furniture nothing no friends nothing around me and just like laying on my kitchen floor just like crying and wondering like why my life was such a mess Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I thought, I don't have to live like this. And I'm like, I don't know what, I don't know. I knew being sober was like, obviously Mm -hmm. a great first step. I didn't know how to do it, but I knew that there were people who knew how. Mm -hmm. And I picked up, it was four o'clock in the morning and I called the crisis center. I was like, what do I, and I'd been on like a, I'd been on a real like first name basis with them for the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. I called them a lot. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, I'm glad you did. Yeah, me too. And but I called them for the last time, and I said, "Hey, like, if I wanted to get sober, like, how do I do that? Where do I go? What do I do?" And they're like, "Go to detox." And they called the detox center, and they were like, "Honestly, you can get here at 7:30. The likelihood that you'll get in today is pretty low. But if you come back tomorrow, like, if you come in and then come back tomorrow, if it's your second time, we'll prioritize you." Mm-hmm. And I thought, I don't think that there's a real good chance that I'm going to go two days in a row. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel like I'm motivated to do this right now, and that's mm-hmm. it. So I was like, what if I go right now, and I just sit outside the door? Like, you can try that. So I went. I got in an Uber at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I went to this detox, and I just sat outside at 4 until they opened at 7.30. And then there was a, a line of, like, 20 people, and they only took in seven. Mm-hmm. And they took me in. And I felt so grateful mm-hmm. because 
by the time 7.30 had rolled around, the sun had come out. It was a beautiful summer day. I had just enough money for rent in my bank account. Mm -hmm. And I thought, if they don't let me in, I can go and buy some booze. And I, who cares about my rent? Who mm -hmm. cares? And it doesn't matter. You know, like that striking while the eye, there's such a short window mm -hmm. of clarity that was already closing. Yeah. But luckily I got in and went through detox. I looked at different treatment centers and my mom is Cree woman and there was a few different options. This, there was a treatment center that was 12-step based that was spiritual mm -hmm. and used um, traditional, uh, some traditional, I mean the Blackfoot, but mm -hmm. traditional teachings mixed with the 12 steps. Is that Sunrise? Yeah. Yeah, great place. Yeah, so I, I applied to that and only there. I also liked that it was, um, it was mixed gender. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really comfortable with the idea of being sort of locked in a building with all these like men. Mm -hmm. Sort of stressed me out. Um, but I, I had remembered enough about the twelve steps that God was in there real soon, mm -hmm. and I just instantly was turned off from it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, maybe if I connect with my this this other side of me, maybe I can find it that way. Mm -hmm. And I remember just thinking, I don't care what I have to do. I will do it to not be where I was. Mm -hmm. um, so I got out of detox and I had to wait, they set up to a month to get into treatment. And I just thought, okay, I just have to go to meetings every day. Mm -hmm. I live near Scarborough. So I found that there was a uh, a morning meeting every day and I was I went to that I love mornings I'm a morning person mm -hmm. and I went to this meeting every day for two weeks while I was waiting to get into treatment and it was sort of the winding down of COVID so we were still upstairs there was mm -hmm. still only like five people coming um, and I well you were up in the gym yeah yeah and I loved it I was, mm. I loved starting my day that way. I just still didn't really understand what people were talking about, but mm. I knew that people were sober and staying sober. And I was like, I just, if I, if I go back out between detox and treatment, I don't know that I'll make it. Mm. And I saw that there was a, a meeting on the Friday night in the same room and that, and I was like, oh, okay, cool. They have an AA meeting on Friday night. I'll hit that one too. Mm -hmm. And I went to it and it was not AA. It was... CA. Yeah. And I remember seeing like the little sign at the door and I walked in and I saw Cocaine Anonymous and I was like, mm, no. <laughs> and I was like trying to like scurry back out. <laughs> and then I was, and then something stopped me and I was like, you did so much cocaine though. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, maybe I should stay. And then I found out that it was pretty much, this, it was pretty similar mm -hmm. program. It still used the big book. It's still the 12 steps. And, mm -hmm. and really there's just a little bit, there's just some subtle differences, but it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's basically the same thing. Um, and this meeting format was totally different. It was like a question thing. And mm -hmm. I just asked, the, like, they were like, does anyone have any questions? And I said, 
you know, what is CA? What is AA? And like, mm. what do I do? And the whole hour was people just going around and explaining this to me. Oh. And I thought, and I just got so much out of it. Right on. That I thought, I want to be a part of this group. Because it, it was mm. huge to me. Because it was, like, I'd been going to meetings since I was on and off since I was 19 and I was 31 and I didn't know anything mm. about it because I was too scared to talk to anybody. Especially like, I was scared of gay people even though I wanted them to like me mm-hmm. and going to gay AA meetings, I was too scared to ever ask anybody to be my sponsor. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I sort of got like a more understanding in that one hour than I had in like mm-hmm. hundreds of other AA meetings and or other 12-step meetings in general. And I then got into Sunrise, and I got a sponsor actually that night from that meeting, and went to Sunrise, and they helped me go through the twelve steps and started teaching me about about um, you know some working traditional practices into mm-hmm. my life, smudging every morning, um, doing sweats, mm-hmm. being they really honored being too spirited in that in the treatment center, mm-hmm. so I could attend any of the cultural things with either the men or the women. Mm-hmm. So when I did a sweat, I did a men's sweat, which was four rounds. I don't know if you've ever done sweats. Yeah. It's so intense. Very intense, yeah. I was terrified. And the, I, could, I did two rounds with the men, and I just couldn't continue. Mm-hmm. Then a week later, we, they did a women's sweat, and I went with the women, and I stayed for all of it. Mm-hmm. It was one of the most intense and beautiful experiences because, like, the elder was praying about all sorts of stuff for these women, and it was just, I felt so connected. Um, I'm pretty, like, you know, I definitely connect easier with women and the more Mm -hmm. feminine side of myself. And that was really beautiful that I could could do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't excluded from it. I remember being in treatment, my counselor asked me, like, what's different this time? Why, why is this time going to be different with getting sober? Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I used to think, like, what made me an alcoholic? Like, was it some trauma when I was a kid? Was it this thing? that Was it because I didn't have friends? Was it because I moved so much? Was it because of that? Mm-hmm. Why, like, why was it? Why did I become an alcoholic? And I was like, at this point, I'll never know, and I don't care, and I don't need to know. All I know is that I have this problem and I need to, to, to treat it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think deep down I always wanted to be able to fix that thing mm-hmm. and then I could be like everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I tried that for a long time and it didn't work. And we worked through the steps and in treatment and with my sponsor, I remember doing doing it all sort of quickly, not really understanding it, but, but getting a good like first understanding of what the 12 steps were. Mm-hmm. I was praying every day, begrudgingly. I had been so opposed to God in my life mm-hmm. because of being, you know, an openly gay kid in like rural Alberta was not easy. And, you know, people <sighs> like to I weaponize. I can't even imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't imagine. And people like to weaponize religion mm-hmm. and weaponize God to suit their judgments. Yeah, they sure do. And I experienced that a lot. So that was my, and my parents mm-hmm. weren't religious at all. 
So the only ex exposure I had to religion was people who did not like me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, That's unfortunate. Yeah, and now I have this, you know, through actually being in this program, God of my understanding mm -hmm. or non-understanding is, is vital to my life. Um, but I was, first got into the program, I was praying and I, I did the, uh, I started with creator because mm -hmm. I couldn't say God. And then I moved to higher power. And then it became God because it's just much easier to text. Three letters. Yeah. It's just, and, <laughs> and I, there's something that actually changed in my brain when I stopped having the judgment of being afraid of saying God. Mm -hmm. And we got, I, so I got through the steps there. And when I left, there was an elder that I got to sit with and talk to. And I told him a bit about my life. And he told me, go to the reserve. My mom was adopted by German people, so mm -hmm. she's not really connected with her own traditional self either. But he said, you should go with your mother up to the reserve that she would be from. Mm -hmm. And just go and pray to Creator, leave an offering, because your spirit is there and you've never been there and you need mm -hmm. to connect your spirit. So my mom and I went up. Oh, I just got goosebumps. That's pretty powerful shit. Yeah. So we go up there, mm -hmm. spend a weekend, we've got a cabin. Um, I know, my mom knows her biological family, and I know them too. We've like reconnected over the last 20 years. I've met my biological grandmother, my cook-up. I've met her maybe like three or four times. Mm -hmm. She's a lovely lady. And, you know, people aren't Facebook. I know them-ish. Mm -hmm. And they're all lovely. And she doesn't, and my... My cookum doesn't live there. She lives far away. She hasn't lived on the reserve in a million years. And so we go out there, and my mom asks a cousin or an uncle, like, who do we know that's there that we could go say hi to? He's like, oh, your cousin so-and-so lives there. Like, go say hi to him. She's like, where does he live? And he's like, it's the resiest house on the res. It was our only direction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're driving on this. And I'm like, it's got to be that house, you know? So we drive up to this house, and, and my mom's car, she does storm chasing and uh, Aurora photography mm. as a hobby. Yeah. And she's very good at it. Her and her wife are both very good at it, and they have matching cars, and they have, like, pink lightning bolts on them, and they're, mm. like, Instagram handles and stuff. So we're cool. in this SUV that's covered in lightning bolts and mm. really, like... Anyways, so we pull into this house. <laughs> we haven't even stopped driving yet. We're just like slowly pulling up the driveway and the door opens and this little lady comes out and I recognize that it's my biological grandmother. Oh, okay. Standing on this porch. And I open the, I get out of the car and she's just standing and she says, you found me. I was like, what are you doing here? She's like, I haven't been here in 16 years, but I came to visit my sister. I think she was dying of cancer. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was like, what are you doing here? I was like, well, I talked to an elder and he told me I had to come here to connect with the land and where we're mm -hmm. from. And she's like, well, I'm not from here. She's like, I'm from this lake down the road. Let's go there. Mm -hmm. So me and my mom and my cook, we get in the car and we start driving and we go to this other place, this other lake. And we get, drive down this road, this big no trespassing signs and 
She's like, just go down. It doesn't matter. I'm, just, I'm stressed out. We get to this house. This giant man comes out with a big dog. My cookum like hops out. She's like, you know, five foot, mm-hmm. maybe like four nine. Big cookum glasses, big purse. <laughs> and she hops out. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be so scary. And he, he recognizes her. And he's like, oh, like you're, my family bought this place from your family. And, mm-hmm. and then he tells me about how he's starting a tourism business where he's going to take people around the lake to these sacred sites that the indigenous people use that you can't get to mm-hmm. other than by water. Um, and then he would take me out on his boat if I wanted to. And, and we spent the afternoon walking around and my cooking was showing me like different medicines, how to use them, which she'd been learning about her journey becoming an elder. Mm-hmm. She was showing me the trees that her father had planted when she was a little girl and where the wagon would pick her up and take her to school. And Wow, man, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I was standing there with my mother and my biological grandmother and I'd just been out of treatment, I think for like a week or two. And I was thinking like, you know, really, like, had a hard time understanding turning my will and my life over mm-hmm. to something else. But in that moment, I had realized I turned my will and my life over to some guy. Well, not some guy. He's an elder. But in mm-hmm. my mind, just some guy told me, like, go do this thing. Mm-hmm. And I did it. And I was now in the, having this experience that was totally different and, mm-hmm. and much more meaningful than anything I could have imagined. I thought if I can keep doing this, things like this will keep happening. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment I like really understood what step three was, mm. you know. And the step three prayer, I, I say every morning before I do anything, mm-hmm. because it's. I think when my life is getting a bit difficult. Mm-hmm. It, that's where it's coming from for me, is that I'm not really turning my will over every day. Mm-hmm. And from there, I, like, I went and did the steps again with a new sponsor. My first sponsor went back out, which was too bad, but... Mm-hmm. It happens, unfortunately. Yeah, and you know, it, it taught me how important the work is. Mm-hmm. And then I worked through the steps with a new sponsor, but I, I had decided like a, because I had at least done one set of steps, I was going to sponsor mm-hmm. as soon as possible. And the day I left treatment, the first advice was go to a meeting when you get out of treatment, mm-hmm. like the first thing you can do. So I like I left treatment, went and dropped my suitcase off at my house, went to a meeting. I was like nobody's going to ask me to sponsor them because mm-hmm. I don't. I was terrified. I was like, I'll raise my hand at the end when they say, is anyone willing to sponsor? Because mm-hmm. I hear people say, I can't find sponsees. I can't find sponsees. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no one's going to ask. First meeting, first day. I haven't even got, unpacked my suitcase yet. Somebody walks up to me, will you sponsor me? Mm-hmm. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> sure. And it was a great opportunity. And I just had to trust the fact that like, God put me and this person together for a reason. Mm-hmm. And you know, I learned a lot out of that. And it's been really vital to my recovery to do what's suggested for me. Mm-hmm. And my sponsor saying, go sponsor people. That's what I do. Go do service. Mm-hmm. I do service. Immediately went, got a position at a home group, which is 
this position called liaison, where you just communicate with the church, and I have a set of keys. Mm -hmm. But I was three months sober, and they gave me a set of keys for the church, and I was like, you're giving me the, I could come in here anytime. Mm -hmm. And the, like, the idea that somebody was trusting me with that level of responsibility was overwhelming and, no and beautiful. And I, you know, we're, I started going to that, chairing that meeting, and, and going to meetings every, every day, trying to find work. I had a lot of ideas of what I was going to do for work, mm -hmm. but I've been open and be, to whatever comes mm -hmm. my way. And in the end, I actually work in a totally different field than I ever thought I would. I work in the tech industry now, mm -hmm. um, and I love it. Right on. And that is not what I pictured for my life, and it's a lot better than I could mm -hmm. have imagined. <laughs> right on. And I now, through that, like, just started going to tons of meetings um, in all different fellowships, mm -hmm. right? Any 12-step meeting I, I'll go to and, and uh, look to, I don't know, meet new people. It was being in in the 12-step rooms that I finally, for the first time, it was probably after about being six months sober when I started really developing some mm -hmm. friendships, some connections, that I really, it clicked that I had found that group I was looking for mm -hmm. forever. It wasn't just like, I don't know. And now I... I look so forward to the fellowship, mm -hmm. to spending time with these people. And I haven't been around that long, but I've been around long enough to see it work for other people mm -hmm. and to watch people get better is beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I kind of wish I could see what I looked like when I came in on day one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe somebody took a picture. Somebody at Daily came up to me recently, and she's like, I was here on your first day. Mm -hmm. And she was like, I remember you. <laughs> she was like, you were a scared little boy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no doubt. I think, I think I was, too. Yeah. I'm sure I was. Yeah. And she's like, and now you're a man. Mm -hmm. I'm like, thank you. Yeah, you, you know? sure are. And it's, but I found, you know, after about a year, I started to really, like, people told me I would sort of struggle at a year, and then I did. And mm -hmm. the thing that I started to do was dig in more. I started mm -hmm. to look for more opportunities to be of service to other people. And I'm starting to see these changes in my life of like what my instinct is mm -hmm. when a situation comes up. Where in the beginning of this process, I was forcing myself to do certain things, do the right thing, mm -hmm. because my instincts were always the wrong thing. And now my instincts are changing, which is an incredible thing to see. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, and now I really feel like I can, I really see God working in my life so often. Mm -hmm. I have, uh, I, I have this like opportunity to work with a lot of people, a lot of sponsees, mm -hmm. and I do a lot of speaking, like H and I speaking at treatment centers. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can explain what H&I speaking is, because someone mentioned that to me, and I'm like, I've been around for a long time. I've never heard of that. 
Yeah, H&I means, um, I'm sure AA does it too. It's uh, hospitals and institutions. Mm. And I actually am going to a women's treatment center after this to do this. Oh, you're doing this? I'm going to a youth one after this to do this. <laughs> That's where I'm headed, yeah. You're busy people. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and... Yeah, so that's that's it, right? We just yeah. go in and, and speak um, about our experience and experience finding mm -hmm. the 12 steps. And I wasn't scheduled to before we came here, though, just so you know that. Someone messaged me as I was on my way and, and said, what do you, are you free tonight from 6 to 7? And I was like, depends on what it's for. And they were like, well, to come speak at a treatment center. Ah, I can't say no because I actually have the free time. <laughs> so I was like, fuck. Same thing <laughs> happened to me last night. Yeah, I yeah. bet, right? Because it's like I know... For me, uh, when someone asks if I can do it, I have to, right? Me too. Yeah. Absolutely. I had something else I really wanted to do this evening, mm -hmm. you know, but that's not, that's not God's will in my life. Yeah, not today. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's amazing to have that perspective shift. Mm -hmm. There's been times recently where I, like, I was waiting for a certain amount of money to come in that wasn't and ended up taking months longer. Mm -hmm. And my immediate reaction to it was, I'm probably going to need that money in a couple months. Mm -hmm. Not, where is it? Well, because you're starting to figure it out. Yeah. But this stuff comes when it needs to be there, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that's a, re a much more beautiful way to live my life mm -hmm. than the way I used to live. I was so filled with fear and insecurity. And I really wanted people to have a perception of mm -hmm. who I was. Or who I am, but I wasn't. I didn't have a developed sense of self, mm -hmm. so I was just constantly trying to craft mm -hmm. a narrative about myself to people. I'm, you know, this person today, and I'm this person here, and I'm this. I'm this person at this party. I'm this person at work. I'm this. Mm -hmm. I'm not actually anybody. And now, I just, I just do what's in front of me, like I do what the next thing is. Mm -hmm. And and I don't really care what other people perceive me as. Right on. Yeah. Well, and as you become more comfortable in your own skin, that feeling grows. Just right. so it just keeps growing, right? That feeling of whatever people have to say is their business because everybody has to do what they have to do, right? Exactly. But yeah. it doesn't mean we have to change anything. So. No. Yeah. And it's been a pretty, it's been an incredibly beautiful journey in in this part of recovery. I didn't really think, I didn't, I came into recovery because I didn't want to die. Mm -hmm. I didn't come into recovery for happiness because I didn't think I would ever find happiness. Mm -hmm. But I thought I would be able to stay sober. And since then, I found a lot of joy in my life. And it's been very, like, I think going in with no expectations was helpful <laughs> mm -hmm. because it's been, it's been great. Um, not every day is great. Not everything is always awesome. It rarely is. The most important thing I've learned through this, like through this journey of recovery is that life is filled with ups and downs. I now, when I'm in the downs, I know that they won't last forever. Mm -hmm. And when I'm in the ups, I can savor them a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But know that that's not permanent either. Nothing is. Yeah. And that's incredible. And I've also like been on a more the spiritual aspect of my life now. 
I always thought I was like super open-minded. Mm-hmm. I'm like a queer person. I like accept everyone. And then you mention religion and I'm like, you know, my mind closes yet. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought I was like real open-minded, but I was kind of just very judgmental. <laughs> and now, you know, I've been going, I've been experiencing different people's faiths. Mm-hmm. Um, every it's pretty s- cool to be open to those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm going to a church tomorrow that is pretty opposed to, you know, a lot of the way that I live my life. And, you know, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still curious about what, yeah, you know, God's still in the room and a lot of people are just doing the, everyone's just doing the best they can with the yeah. tools that they have. And, um, I just like to experience the way people experience their own faith mm-hmm. to be in the room while people are getting closer to God is an incredible experience. Yeah. Regardless of if I believe that or, or not. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. It's been, it's been really good. I don't know. Right on. Yeah. Well, thank you, Benji. Thank you so much, and good luck tonight. You too. Uh, yeah, thank you. Mine's at six. I think yours might be at seven. But uh, yeah, anything else you want to say before we close her down? No, no. That, it's been great, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, it was our pleasure having you, Benji. Thank you very <laughs> much for coming.